0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi, I'm producer Ren Bangert. Hi, I'm producer Ren Bangert, and this is Darts and Letters. Welcome back to our summer programming here on the New Books Network. We're showcasing weekly themed content from all across the history of the show. And starting on September 12th, we'll have brand new content premiering here on the network, so stay tuned. This week, we're exploring the politics of video games. Today's episode takes a broader look at gaming. We live in a gamified society. From getting your daily steps to working in a warehouse, there's a game for that. Today's host, Jay Coburn, brings us stories of gamification in the workplace and beyond. Over to you, Jay.
3: From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Jay Coburn. Darts and Letters is a podcast about the ideas that shape our world, whether we want them to or not. We're a show about politics, academia, populism, and when games aren't really games. I've been learning Spanish for a few years now, but I'm a bit rusty given that I haven't been able to travel for a while. So rather than shelling out for lessons, I'm using Duolingo, the app with the annoying owl that sends you passive-aggressive emails, and honestly, it's been really helpful. I don't think it could ever make me fluent, but my vocabulary is definitely bigger. And crucially, I want to keep using the app. It's fun. As you progress through the units, you earn experience points, unlock badges. You even compare how you're doing against your friends. There are leaderboards which show how many points you've earned. Do I think the person with the most points is the best at speaking Spanish? No. Do I
2: want to be the one with the most points? Yes gamification is the use of game design elements in non-game contexts so it basically means are there a certain kind of active ingredients parts or components of games that make them fun or engaging and then can we use these in other things like fitness or work or education to make whatever task that is more engaging that's professor sebastian dieteding who studies gamification at
3: york university more from him later Turning things into games is not new in education. If you make learning more fun, it's more effective. Apps like Duolingo are just part of that long tradition. But now we're gamifying everything. Finding a date these days is just a socially awkward game of snap. Or you can outsource your health to a game. How many steps have you taken today? Do you want to share your run with Nike Run Tracker? Average pace 403 per kilometer. Do the thing, win the points. It's a decent motivational tool. It does work. But those points often don't line up with the outcomes we're really looking for. If I have the most matches on Hinge, I probably still don't have a date. And that's not the worst thing in the world. Everything I've talked about so far has been kind of optional. But when it's not optional, then winning the points can get in the way of the outcomes we actually want. For example, Before I moved to Canada, I was experiencing some pretty serious anxiety. I went to the UK's National Health Service for treatment, and they signed me up for this gamified cognitive behavioral therapy app. You had all these challenges to do that were supposed to teach you CBT. But every one of these challenges included listening to this tape that was supposed to be calming. And I'm sure for a lot of people it was, except that it involved a lot of sitting in silence. And one of the causes for my anxiety was that I had been diagnosed with tinnitus. So, I will never hear silence again. The app made my anxiety worse, and in frustration, I deleted it and gave up looking for treatment. I suffered, and then I moved to Canada. If you ask the NHS though, they'll say that this app is a success because the majority of people who use it don't seek further treatment. I can't speak for everyone else, but I would not call my story one of success. It was a game, not a treatment. Instead of being helped, I was told do the thing and win the points. Gamification has stopped being just a useful educational tool. It's in healthcare, but it's also in how we choose restaurants and travel destinations. It's even in work, especially gig work.
4: Hey everybody, I am David, and I am a Uber and Lyft driver in Knoxville, Tennessee. So, coming on a, say, Saturday night, Sunday, you'll get an email from Lyft saying, hey, the new quests for the next week are available. And so, you'll get on your app and you'll have a selection of, say, five quests for you to choose from. The low being, say, 10 rides from Monday to Friday at 4 a.m. for an extra 20 bucks. Or... 20 rides for an extra 40 bucks, all the way up to 50 rides for an extra $100. That's a pretty average Quest. The caveat to that is you're only gonna do about three rides an hour. And so whenever you get a Quest for say 50 rides, extra 100 bucks, uh, you don't wanna put all that off on one day or even really two days. This is why Uber Sends Out Quest because it's a way to get the driver out on the road on a daily basis.
3: If you've heard about nudge theory, this might sound familiar. Nudge is basically the idea that rather than forcing people to do things, you can just create the environment which makes it more likely that they will make the choices you want them to make.
4: It's because driving is a self-motivated experience. Nobody is going to call you and say, Hey David, we need you to wake up. (laughs) Nobody is gonna be on you saying, hey, you're late, why are you late? You have to motivate yourself. Uber knows this. And so they try to help motivate you by offering you money to get out of bed, to get out of the house, to go drive.
3: But Uber and Lyft aren't nudging David to have a healthier work-life balance. The person who designed this particular game has a different goal in mind. More rides, more money. So today on Darts and Letters, gamification. Do the thing, win the points, but who really tops the leaderboard? We're going to take you inside a gamified workplace, the Amazon warehouse. Mustafa Henaway worked at one in Canada, and he wrote about it for The Breach.
0: If you rightly scan, a green light will go off, and it'll sound like, ding! That award or failure system really sticks to you, where you kind of get excited, to move on to the next thing or to get that green light, but nobody tells you how much you're being watched.
3: Paris Martineau covers Amazon in the US for the information, and she's going to tell us about the even more explicit gamification there.
1: If um, you are working at a faster rate than the other people who you're playing against, you'll see your little dragon or in some cases like cars or your little icon will move around the screen faster and you'll get more points and at the end of it you'll be ranked higher
3: before we get to late stage capitalism though let's get some context because gamification's not
2: inherently dystopian and it's not always about metrics and points for me, that's part of kind of a larger thing that I choose to call gameful design. And that's less about, okay, what are kind of the the cookie cutter IKEA-like patterns or things that you can take from games? But they ask more broadly kind of, what are the kinds of experience that we enjoy about games? So achievement, mastery, progress, connecting with other people, curiosity about what's next, what's behind the corner. And how can we afford these kinds of experiences? doesn't matter whether then that uses a kind of cookie cutter element or not.
3: This is Professor Sebastian Dieterding. He studies and designs gamified systems. So naturally, he's a bit of a proponent of their use. But he's also a bit more thoughtful about it than maybe Uber or Amazon are. So I called him up to find out more about that. But first, I asked him to give me a kind of whistle-stop tour of the admittedly very long history of gamification.
2: Yeah, wow. I mean, for that, we basically need to go back to Plato, at least. Plato already, I forgot which of his books says, basically, in order to figure out what a person is really good at, just look at what they, as children, spontaneously play at. and And that tells you something about that person about their natural disposition, about their natural strengths. So Plato was already of the opinion that we should kind of instrumentalize play, use it for another serious purpose. And then you can say kind of that goes on to basically Chinese, to Waikī, to Go, right? Playing Go was one of the traditional games that as a courtier uh, or, or as a, as a Mandarin in, in, in classic China, you had to be good at as in calligraphy or, or writing poetry. But at the same time, so at the same period that Sun Tzu wrote his Art of War, Go or Waikiki came up, and it was considered to be also strategic training for military leaders. So if you were a general or so, you were supposed to play the game of Go in order to teach you in strategic thinking. And that then went on to kind of 18th century, 19th century Europe and Germany, where basically a couple of people took the traditional game of chess and said, well, actually, if you expand chess a bit, so if you put it on a kind of real simulated map of landscapes and not just these weird squares, and then if you attach some numbers to the units, well, then basically you turn chess into a so-called war game, and that's then an actual planning and, again, military training tool. And that was all the craze in military war academies in Europe in the 19th century. Americans still do it. The Japanese during World War II did this loads. They planned Pearl Harbor that way. with have been kind of wargaming it with, with, with kind of model ships in water and other things. And then it sort of stretches to, I don't know, Communist Russia, basically, because in Communist Russia, people say, "Well, we can't use all of these classic uh, capitalist way of motivating workers." Obviously, that won't do. So, what are the ways in which we can motivate workers to work in the factories? They called that Soviet emulation, and it was basically saying, "Well, can we use team competitions between teams and factories, and can we give them virtual kind of awards and medals, etc., to work well in the factory?" So, again, the idea that there are these kind of game-like virtual or non-real, non-monetary incentives to motivate people. That sort of goes back to that. And then since the, I'd say since the 80s, 1980s, this idea that games as kind of information and reward systems are super well designed to get people to do what you want them to do has cropped up over and over and over again in kind of different waves of business consultancy starting in the 80s and always under slightly different terms. And I would say it kind of got supercharged in 2009, 2010, 2011. That's when kind of right gamification as an actual hype wave started. In that period of time, I would say basically what happened was that kind of digital technology got good enough to track everything that we do in our everyday life, thanks to smartphones, thanks to the capability of the web. And kind of the idea that you design systems with A-B testing with constant user data became commonplace in the web industry. And at the same time, massively multiplayer online role playing games became super popular. So things like World of Warcraft or EverQuest that use all of these progress systems that role playing games use, right? So, So quests and levels and badges and achievement systems on the Xbox. And so when these two things historically came together, then loads of people in Silicon Valley said, aha, there is an intersection here. We can use all of this online role-playing game stuff and add it as a kind of layer or as a kind of white label system on top of all kinds of web services, et cetera, and thereby quote unquote gamify them or turn them into a game. That's basically what got us into what gamification is understood understood to be today.
3: The workplace stuff in Soviet Russia is interesting because now like Amazon is expanding a gamification program in its warehouses and stuff. How does that sort of stuff make you feel? Do you think it's like a positive step or like some people might view it as kind of dystopian, I think?
4: I
2: think, as with most technology trends, you get the utopians and you get the dystopians, so, right? So you can you can read your Umberto Eco, uh, which the original book that he wrote about comics, where he say you might you got a new medium, you get people that say, well, that's the best thing since sliced bread, and you get a couple of people who say, I don't know, that's the downfall of Western civilization. <laughs> and I think with gamification, it's sort of the same. You got loads of loads of really aversive reactions to the idea, and and then loads of kind of TED Talks, basically promising manna falling from the heavens. I think if you look at the workplace, um, so I wrote a very, very short article a couple of years ago about gamification and management. There I pointed back to one of the uh, kind of the early fathers of humanistic management, McGregor. He said there are in management kind of two theories, Theory X and Theory Y. Theory X says kind of basically people form an X with their arms in front of their body, and that's their position to work. So workers in general are lazy, they're aversive to work, and so you constantly need to control and micromanage them with information, rewards, and punishments. And if that's your theory going in, then that's the kind of behavior that you're going to get. It's, it's, it's a kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Similarly, he says there's a the theory why, so it's basically arms stretched toward the heaven, which say, no, no, people in general are, kind of that's where the humanistic part comes in, they're growth-oriented. People want to do something meaningful, they want to do something where they have a sense that they're accomplishing something and that something matters, and they want to get better at that kind of stuff. And again, then if you design a workplace around those kinds of ideas, that's the kind of workers you attract, that's the kind of response that you get. And I think a lot of gamification comes down to what's your incoming theory, therefore how do you design it, and then what are the consequences as a result of it?
3: Yeah, I think this is getting at what I was about to ask you next, because I think you have said that there's kind of two approaches to gamification. And the first of which is the sort of more traditional homo economicus approach. Is that what you were getting at just then?
2: Yeah, I, I would say that McGregor's theory acts and theory Y, to some extent, kind of align with two rhetorics or ways of thinking about gamification at the workplace. So the one is, again, comes out of neoclassical economics and behaviorism which says that basically people are rational kind of benefit maximizers or if you're a behaviorist they're blind benefit maximizers they just learn to do that and so therefore uh what you can do to basically manipulate people's behavior is to use information and incentives and uh gamification is basically a supercharged information and incentive system, right? If you look at the interfaces of something like World of Warcraft with high-level players, like they have dozens and dozens of additional add-ons that give them real-time information about how is that monster doing and how much damage per second do I do, etc. And they have all of these reward and loot systems, and they basically say, well, that's rewards and incentive supercharge, so that's just what we're going to do. We're going to micromanage behavior using that, and because we can do it with computer technology and tracking technology, suddenly we can do it far more real-time, far more frequent, far more fine-grained and automated than before. That's kind of, that's the one story, that's the homo economicus story. The other story is basically the humanistic theory Why story, saying, no, people are people. They're humans. They, they they have basic physical and psychological needs, like the experience of autonomy or competence or relatedness connecting to other people. And um, in order to do that, you're basically not just saying, okay, what are the kind of information dispensers or reward dispensers that I can steal from games? You're asking yourself, okay, how is it that Playing some a game like Among Us or Werewolf or what have you supports people's sense of relatedness, of connecting with each other. So long story short, you have these two philosophies, a kind of a very rationalist business-as-usual homo-economicus model, information incentives, and then you have a kind of humanistic design models. We want to satisfy human needs. Games do that well to some extent. And they do that well because game designers use this kind of prototyping, playtesting, trying out stuff process, which is far more uncertain. But that's what we basically need to copy paste from games, not the cookie cutter information (laughs) dispensers, but this design process.
3: There's a danger here, right, that if we gamify certain things, people are going to focus too much on like the points, the metrics, and it doesn't represent the reality of whether you're achieving you know, your workplace being a better place to work or your healthcare system taking care of people properly. I guess the question I'm trying to ask is like, how in gamification do we avoid that kind of metrics-obsessed viewpoint?
2: The classic saying there is hitting the target and missing the point, right? which is one <laughs> very common downside. So how do you avoid that? To some extent, it comes down to what is this system embedded in, in terms of the actual lived values and norms of the community that is using that. So is there a human override here, basically? Or is there somebody who can use kind of situational sense-making to judge and say, well, yeah, this would be something that does well for the metrics, but long-term for what we're wanting to achieve, this is completely bonkers, so let's not do that. When I was talking with interior designers who were designing playful office spaces for places like Google or other tech companies, they were saying, well, we designed them in these kind of materially outwardly playful face. So we put slides into them and we turn meeting rooms into James Bond villain layers or, and put right artificial uh, grass and foosball tables everywhere. But then if you walk in, you find nobody actually uses that stuff. Because... Well, there is no lift practice around this, which basically says, yes, we are playful and we do take time off. And that is perfectly fine, which ideally also comes from the top, right? So you should see your boss also doing that and using the slide and goofing off with you for half an hour on a foosball table. If that doesn't happen, if they give you a weird stare when you're at the foosball table, when they come around, you know not to use that thing the next time. So the, uh, the mere fact that you have an object that is designed for something does not guarantee that it then produces a certain kind of behavior.
3: When you have these individual targets and metrics and achievements and stuff, it feels like it could really put the onus on the individual when certain things might be better achieved through collective responsibility. Can you talk about the sort of personal responsibility versus
2: societal design? This is something that... Um, I don't know, you you could call the rhetorics of design. So you can say, right, every object by virtue of just existing tells us something, tells a story, makes an argument, right? Just by virtue of there being tons of very expensive smartphones, they just say, this is a good thing. This is how society should be. You should care about having expensive smartphones and choosing between them judiciously. And similarly, most of gamification applications put the honest and put the responsibility for something on the individual because they're all designed to manipulate your individual behavior, right? So here's the smart trash bin that gets you to, right, separate waste properly. Here is the smart traffic lamp that tries you to regulate your own speed. Or here's the Fitbit that tries you to walk more steps, right? So all of these things say it's due to your willpower and determination or lack of it, whether we have good things in the world or not. It's due to you. And this kind of responsabilization of the self is the story that these devices tell. But that obviously then backgrounds that context, infrastructure, architecture, societal norms, taxes, what have you, all of the systems in which we live have often a much stronger impact on what we do or don't do than whatever we can control with our with our poor little willpower so my my favorite example for that is with the fitbit when a colleague of mine who's living in rochester in upstate new york was moving from rochester for a, a semester to teach in dubrovnik in croatia And uh, just sending me screenshots of her Fitbit and said, well, in Rochester, I usually get up to 4,000 steps. In Croatia, suddenly, every day, without effort, I get to 15,000 steps. What happened? And um, the answer is Dubrovnik is an old European medieval city uh, within its city walls, right? It's UNESCO heritage. They shot Game of Thrones there. It's built in a hill. It basically has no streets where cars fit through. And the, the easiest, if not only, way to get from A to B is to walk. And to walk lots and lots of stairs, because it's walked built in a hill. Right? So the system, the architecture around you, basically kind of is a forcing function to get you to do something. Whereas Rochester is a classic American, grid-based, single-zoning, city built for cars. right? In an area that is super cold, lots of time of the year, you can't go anywhere in Rochester from A to B unless you have a car. So obviously during the day, you're gonna walk much, much less. And that it has nothing to do with the fact that you have less or more willpower, right? Her willpower didn't change between the two places. It's just what the environment made possible or impossible to you. And again, right, the, the story that all of these applications often tell is, no, 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 forget about the system, it's about you.
3: That was Sebastian Dieterding, Professor of Digital Creativity at the University of York. He's written about and created loads of gamified systems. You can find his work at codingconduct.cc. All right, let's talk about gamified workplaces, specifically Amazon warehouses. Paris Martineau is a journalist with the information. She covers Amazon for them, and she's written about how they've gamified their roboticized warehouses in the U.S., with a program called FC Games.
1: Essentially what the workers in these warehouses have to do is stand in one place and robots will bring them a bunch of goods over to either, you know, pick something off the shelves or stow something they have on the shelves. It can get really monotonous very quickly. And Amazon, in all aspects of its warehouse operations, but especially in these robotic ones, has high turnover, high injury rates, often from all this going on, but not a lot to focus on. FC Games came about because one of the ways that Amazon um, directs these workers to do these tasks is it has a screen near their workstation where it says, oh, you've got to put this item here or take this item from there. And Amazon tracks their productivity based on the number of items that they've picked or stowed. But FC Games comes in, it's an addition to those screens. And it is essentially, you'll look at it and you'll see a screen with four or five different game options on it next to the screen that tells the worker what to do. The games have names like Tamazilla, Castle Crafter, Picks in Space, Dragon Duel, and Mission Master. And workers have the option to tap on a big button that says Log In to Play, and then they log in and can either play in games where the game mechanic is them doing their jobs, in some cases, faster and faster. There is one of the games where, essentially... You as the warehouse worker are competing against others in your warehouse to pick and stow objects faster. And if um, you are working at a faster rate than the other people who you're playing against, you'll see your little dragon, or in some cases like cars, your little icon will move around the screen faster and you'll get more points. And at the end of it, you'll be ranked higher. There are other games where you're just competing against yourself. One of the ones I found the most interesting was called Tamazilla, which is kind of like Tamagotchi, but a weird Amazon version. And by picking and stowing and doing your work at a fast rate, you can collect a bunch of coins to buy and unlock a pet dragon or a pet sparkly fish or something and then feed and keep that alive by working harder. Workers' opinions on FC games are mixed, to say the least. Some of the warehouse workers that I've spoken to have said that workers at their facility don't want to play the games because they're afraid that the competitive aspect of it will make them go even faster and could cause them to hurt themselves, which is a big issue at um, robotics-enabled warehouse facilities in particular. One of the people I spoke to said that a lot of people are kind of ambivalent uh, about it, just saying it's another way for Amazon to track them. But of course, there are some people that find it a welcome distraction or just something to do during their
2: day.
3: That was Paris Martino, who covers Amazon for the information. There are links to her work in the show notes. Next up, we'll be speaking to someone who has actually worked in an Amazon warehouse. That's after this. You're listening to Darts and Letters, a show about the
2: politics of academia, ideas, and intellectual life. We're proud to be a new member of the New Books Network. And all this summer, we're playing some highlights
3: from our archives. But we're coming back in September. And if you like what you hear now, you'll want to hear that. So why don't you subscribe to our podcast? You can find it by searching Darts and Letters wherever you find your podcasts or going to dartsandletters.ca. While Amazon's American warehouses are bringing this really explicit gamification in, in true Canadian style, their warehouses north of the border have a more polite but equally insidious approach. Mustafa Henaway studies Amazon, so he went to work at one of their Canadian warehouses for a while, And then he wrote about it for the breach.
0: Applying for the job at Amazon is probably the most interesting and the most scariest, creepiest part about the entire process. So Amazon tells you you don't need any experience. You know, no past job experience is necessary to work at Amazon. So you figure how complicated can this application process be? You must just write down your name and then go in, right? but you actually have brought into a portal where you take something similar to like a high school counseling career placement exam. So really industrial psychology. So you'll get questions like how gratified are you in life? One to five. And you got (laughs) to ask yourself, this is a pretty scary question to ask because I'm applying to work at Amazon, you must know the answer already. If I was truly gratified, (laughs) I wouldn't be here right now. And then they ask you questions. If you were to win a prize for a job you did, but that job was part of a team, do you A, be happy and accept the award, and believe that it was you and your hard work that made you get this award? Do you thank everyone on your team because it was a collective effort? And you feel like these are trick questions because if you say I'm satisfied, it must mean that I'm going to quit or that I'm a happy docile worker. Because if, if I'm happy and I'm applying for Amazon, I won't care when I'm at Amazon. So is it a trick question? If I say, no, I want to get ahead in life. I'm going to work hard. So this goes on for about 20 minutes on an
3: online portal. Did you get the sense that a human reviewed your results? Or do you think it was just like if you scored a certain amount of points, you got offered the job? Yeah,
0: no, there's no human reviewing it. It's clear that it's an automated program that probably says if score is below 10 or above
3: 10, say yes, say no. It's so bizarre. It's so unlike any job application process I've been through. Okay, so we're on to the start date now. Tell me about your first day.
0: So the first day you get there, and they make it really fun. And the facility that I was at was very new. So I was there for the first day of the facility. So it was a bit chaotic at the same time. And, you know, the place is really gleaming. It's new. There's like these balloons to welcome you. It's like being at the Chuck E. Cheese birthday party when you were a teenager in Toronto. You know, there's like snacks and cookies, and they have these like chocolates that like look like the Amazon logo for the facility. So each facility has its own logo. And so they even had chocolates in the logo, and you know, and everyone was happy and and giving like this kind of award story of like, you know, I've been here for a year and now look at me. I'm an operations manager. You can do it too. No one tells you about how hard the job is going to be, right? Everyone tells you the opposite. And they even the first thing, I remember one of our bigger managers said is like, you heard about the story about the guy who had to pee? Not true. We have lots of bathrooms, bathrooms everywhere. You can <laughs> pee whenever you want. They were really conscious about this thing about peeing in a, in a bottle. But no one tells you the rates, quotas, nothing, nothing you know, for the whole training process. No one tells you how fast you're supposed to move. And I thought to myself, you know, I've worked in other warehouses before. This is seems kind of really nice in comparison.
3: Tell me a little bit about the actual work then. What was a normal shift like? So the shift begins at like
0: eleven. And then you get there, you do your stand up meeting, which is I guess began in the tech corporate culture world, you know, and then you go around, you do a success story. People talk about what you did that day and what happened the shift before everyone applauds. And then you look at a video of this small robot on the screen and you do some safety exercises. And then you're told what tasks you're going to do. And then you all go to the locker, you pick up your your ARM device, your TCI, which is like a mini computer, but like a large smartphone. And from there, the tasks are clear. Either you're a stower, so you're moving boxes off the conveyor belt and into the right bags, labeling, and then you're doing that for four or five hours straight, right? The shifts are designed to be long, right? So Amazon works on 10-hour shifts, but 11-hour work day, and you're working four days a week. And so, you know, you would be working from one till five straight until your first break. It's really monotonous. It's this idea of really of digital tailors and you really are doing the same thing over and over and over again. And you have no control over your work. And what happens in this insidious way, and you're still not told what the rates are, what your productivity should be, but your machine operates everything. So your TCI device, you log into it and you have to scan with your fingers so it's kind of like the board, right like you have one thing with a light on one finger and then your other arm is the device so you you wave past the box and then on your arm it will say e29 and you'll go to row e aisle thing put the box in there and it's sort of like this tetris thing that you have to do and when things come off the conveyor belt, they're moving, you know, each facility can move twenty-five to 35,000 boxes a night, right? Packages, everything. You're moving, like, shoes to bags to books to a lot of cat litter, and the machine will tell you, if you misscanned, it'll tell you that you're wrong. If you rightly scanned, a green light will go off and it'll sound like, ding. <laughs> you know, the way that your device makes a sound when you're right or when you're wrong or when you're told to move the green to the green light or not to the red light. That award or failure system really sticks to you. And you have those sounds with you for like weeks afterwards, right? Because you've done it so many times for so long. And like feeling that you have no control except to either get even that small award of the green light, right? To move on. It's a pretty eerie process, and, and but I guess in the moment makes it the challenge where you kind of get excited to move on to the next thing or to get that green light. But nobody tells you how much you're being watched, right? And you, you begin to notice there's all these people walking around with laptops on these wheelie carts. You don't know what they're doing. And then you find out that they're actually watching you. And they're watching your metrics. They don't need to be breathing down your neck to watch you because every movement is measured by your scanner and your device. So they can find out what you're doing in the last 20 seconds, the last two hours. So let's say at the end of a shift before the bags, all the packages go out at 9 9 a.m. to the trucks, they'll check and they'll say, you know what? And this happened one shift. I remembered it was the scariest moment, I think, when I worked there and I realized how powerful Amazon was. Our manager came down stopped everyone said look there are two packages missing I was like, how do you know there's two packages missing there were two packages that should have went into this aisle into this bag and they're not there and we know who last touched them where are they no one walks away until we have hundred percent efficiency Huh. and i thought to myself in that moment is like how many times did he not get something from Canada Post, you're supposed to get a letter and it never came, and you were kind of okay with that idea. But for Amazon to not have 100% efficiency was out of the question. So they put pressures on the manager, the manager puts pressures on the supervisors. supervisors put pressure on the workers, and it's all automated. This is the manager's quota, this is the supervisor's quota, this is your quota. And everyone's in that game, right? And you realize that even the manager is not a manager. It's the higher paid version of you.
3: I want to talk about the word productivity because it came up in your breach article a couple of times. And it's kind of a vague word. And I want to know how you would measure whether you're doing a good job or a bad job. So
0: at first, Amazon doesn't tell you there's a productivity rate work good, work hard, work fast. I remember on the radio, someone was like, did you hear that? Did you hear that? He's hitting 250. What does that mean? So I was like, oh, you're hitting 250 items an hour. The metric is simply how many boxes you can move within an hour, right? And if you're below 300, you know, and if you've been there for a while, that's considered bad. And your productivity is important because if you're not productive, then boxes pile up. That screws the pickers. If the pickers are messed up, that screws the stowers. Then the whole thing collapses. So the whole thing is about not getting the place to fall apart. And you're just on on an edge. And it's not like other jobs. So you you know because the machine measures your productivity. The machine also tells you what your next task is going to be. So if you fail, like let's say I place the box in the wrong bag everything goes red. My arm goes red. The bag goes red. I can't move on. I can only move another box until the machine accepts that I did the task right. So if I screw up one task that begins to slow me down and someone will come and then coach, if you're not being productive, all of a sudden some supervisor comes out of nowhere an assistant, and assisted is like, you know, I'm just here to coach you, help you how to move a box or whatever. You know, it's like you watched on the laptop that I screwed up three times. You can hear the noise too, and now you're coming to help me. So you're always feeling guilty about being unproductive, right? You're hurting others, you're hurting yourself, you're hurting the customers. So that really is how productivity is measured, but in the cold bluntness, it, I mean they they'll tell you later on that it's essentially it's somewhere between 350 to 4 is a really good worker. That's when you really are productive,
3: items per hour. So say you're one of these, uh, quote unquote, good workers, you're hitting 450 items an hour. How is that rewarded?
0: So there's two levels. So there's permanent and seasonal. Seasonal, you're a white badge. Permanent, you're a blue badge. Seasonal, you have no benefits. You have no right to change positions, apply for other jobs. All the things that come, all the carrots that come with Amazon, you only get them when you're blue. So when you're white, the reward is to become a blue badge, to become permanent. When you're blue badge, the real carrot is that you're not going to be moving boxes anymore. That's the real reward, right? You'll do this for three or four months. You're going to hit those rates. Someone's going to come down and say, do you know what? Start training. Put that box away. Tomorrow, you're training as an assistant PA. Kind of like a supervisor.
3: So it's the next step up from uh, moving boxes, basically.
0: Exactly. And your salary goes up. And, but the big thing is, is that you're not moving boxes anymore. That's the reward.
3: Are these actual badges, like physical badges you wear?
0: Yes. Yeah, yeah, like a worker's badge. And one will be white, one will be blue.
3: Right. So you can look around and you can see who is the, uh, the permanent staff and who is not.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, and every level has its own colored safety vest. So when you're a pleb, you know, when (laughs) when, uh, you wear the orange vest, right? When you're an assistant PA, you wear a different color. It's like blue and green. When you're PA, it's like an orange and blue. When you're operations manager, you know, big boss, it's red and blue.
3: Did you speak to any of the managers or people higher up? Like, I'd love to know what, uh, how they found all this stuff.
0: Some, you know, off the record, like a few people that I, you know, you would speak to and they'd laugh to you like they're like, what human resources, you know, it's just a computer. I can't believe I'm still here. You know, like they put on a good show. I mean, that's the whole thing, right? You realize more and more and more is that people are putting on a show.
3: What's the show? Is the show that they like it there and they're pretending they do or?
0: Yeah, that everyone is into this. There's, like, an image. There's, like, a facade, right? There's, like, uh, that it's just dystopian, looking at computer screens, measuring metrics, bored to death, people being recycled in and out, and pretending that it's, like, that it's Disneyland.
3: How did this affect how you felt about yourself as a worker? Well, the thing that made me feel at the lowest
0: was when I watched two people no one told us, but how and how does this happen when I was like, I watched two people, you know, in a short time already move up the ladder. And I was like, why didn't I get to move up the ladder? And you realize they don't tell anybody how you move up the ladder. Is it favoritism? Is it just hard work? Nobody tells you anything. So yourself as a worker. You want the reward, you want the satisfaction, you want to feel good, right? Nobody wants to go to work no matter what they're doing. No one wants to feel bad. They did a bad job, even if they might hate their job. They still want to feel like they did a good job. But you're not sure how you're doing a good job. And I think they're very careful about how they do that, right? I think it's very, you can't put anything past Amazon. That's not calculated. I think it's very calculated, right? So they must at some point say that they have, you know, there's a reason why they're going to thank someone the next day at the stand-up meeting or who's going to get rewarded. So you, and when you watch other people get rewarded and you begin to ask yourself, why not me? You start feeling a bit depressed and then you start feeling, well, I should do a better job. I'm going to work
3: harder. It actually works. If I can speculate for a second on the... Um vague terms of promotion, based on everything you've said to me, it sounds like they must have some metric that means computer flags eligible for promotion, but they probably only have so many positions. So they probably don't want you knowing what that metric is, which makes you eligible for promotion, because once you've met that metric, you're not going to try and go any higher. Does that sound like it could be a realistic idea?
0: Yes. I mean, Amazon, I think fundamentally is squeezing the most out of their workers. That's priority one. Right. And it's built in burnout. It's built in turnover. And you realize this when you're there, like there was you know, one small thing, right? Like not even promotions when we get our breaks. Right. It's 11 hour shift. It's a long shift. We get three breaks. You should be getting your break every three hours. You think that would make you the most productive. Day one, our supervisor tells us, you know, it's five hours. We're just getting our first break. It's, it's crazy. It's 6 a.m. He's like, oh, I forgot, you know, no no, 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 na, na. And then they give us the breaks at the end. And then the next day, the same thing happens. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, we were busy, you know, go take your break now. Same time, though. And then by the end of the week, he doesn't say anything, right? And the breaks, I was like, this is calculated. They must realize workers probably work the hardest until 6 or 7 a.m. and then they start collapsing. So you 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 squeeze them for the peak time and create all the crappy tasks later on that require less energy and the breaks.
3: Do you think other workplaces might start adopting these kind of systems?
0: Well, it's not that they will start maybe adopting. So one of the things that Amazon has moved with, with Amazon Web Services is called Amazon Business Analytics. So what Amazon does inside its workplace has two big ramifications outside of the workplace or general, like becoming the norm or the standard, right? So Amazon Business Analytics is a platform, right? Amazon figures out a way to monetize everything. So the platform is an internal platform, the way measure the metrics and the labor force and all these things. Amazon's like, you're never going to compete with us, right? We're Amazon. But you can operate like we do. You can rent our management process
3: so it could be coming to a workplace near you soon then yes
0: and as opposed to then adopting or trying to steal or whatever that you'll just use amazon's process amazon's platform maybe amazon devices who knows the other thing that you know when people are pretty smug about canada and amazon that it will never be as bad as the us you know we're moving in that direction quite rapidly. And if Amazon's going to become the largest logistics company on earth, it has huge implications for everywhere. But the thing that, you know, all powerful Amazon, all powerful Jeff Bezos is that it's not that all powerful, right? Because behind it, it's just people moving boxes at an incredibly fast rate. I mean, Amazon's built a system that's so fragile, so fragile. If things don't move in hours or seconds, the whole chain collapses in front of your eyes. So it's extremely fragile, right? Which gives communities power, which gives workers
3: power. That was Mustafa Henaway, community organizer at the Immigrant Workers Center. He wrote about his experience working for Amazon in Canada for the breach. You'll find a link to that article in the show notes. And that's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. Our managing producer is Mark Apollonio. Our research assistant is Dave Moscrop. Our marketing assistant is Ian Sowden. As always, our theme song and outro is composed by Mike Barber. Graphic designs by Dakota Coop. The editor and usual host is Gordon Katick, And I'm lead producer Jake Ober. This episode was part of a wider series looking at the politics of video games. It was given support by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, and it was housed at the University of British Columbia and Waterloo University. Darts and Letters is supported by our generous patrons. If you want to become one of them, go to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. Patrons get content a day early. This is a production of Cited Media, and we're backed by academic grants that support mobilizing research and democratizing the concept of public intellectualism. The founding academic advisor of the program is Professor Alan Sens at the University of British Columbia.